Coming up next, once more into the breach, my friends, as we read Henry V. We are the bookening, of course. Welcome to the Booking. This is Nathan Alverson, your humble and obedient host. I mispronounced the word. I said obedient. Meant to say obedient. Not a good sign. Brandon's opening a Coke loudly into the mic. A bad start for the Booking. Just like old Henry V went into England. It looked like he was going to lose. But then like at the Battle of the Think, 32 British guys died because that's how cool British people are. And like a billion French guys died because that's how terrible they are. Pretty sure not historically accurate. (laughs) 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 All right, folks. My name is Nathan Alberson, humble and obedient host. Some people call me the Lord of Validation, namely myself. I call me that. (laughs) I don't think anyone else has ever called me that. Several people have told me I'm one of the least validating people that they know. (laughs) That's happened a couple times. (laughs) My wife tells me anytime I give her a speech that's meant to inspire her, she wants to kill herself. (laughs) (laughs) Let's introduce our other two panelists, though. You you know them and you you love them. You love them. You've got their posters on your wall. You wear t-shirts with their faces. We don't We do. No, but we did just send out our t-shirts and I predict these t-shirts will be so popular we'll have to do a run to sell people because these t-shirts are pretty cool. People have been asking about them. People have just seen them on uh, social. SM, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Nice. Sure enough. Sure enough. You didn't even look at it? Brandon's looking at the t-shirt right now. We're going to get his live reaction. Whoa! It's awesome. I've seen it. Pretty sure I did heart eyes or something at Jake's picture on Instagram. You voted on it. Yeah, that's right. All right, guys. Henry V. No, we still haven't introduced you, have we? Brandon yeah. Chastine, he's the scholar who's a baller of reading. Pretty much the Henry Styles of our group. The women yeah. when we go up, when we make public appearances. Henry Styles. Did I say Henry Styles? Yeah. Well, Henry, Harry, you know. Uh, Brandon, he's mobbed by scores of adoring female fans when we go out in public. Gonna just beat them off with a stick. He's the Paul McCartney. He's the beautiful one. Everybody. It's really his looks, you know? He doesn't have that much interesting to say, but he looks good, which is a, an important thing for a, a, an audio medium kind of show like ours. Yeah, it's been very useful. Handsome guy. If you imagine Gaston, when he says he's as large as a barge. You remember that part like where he, he makes cartoonishly? I knew it was coming somewhere, Nathan. You old card. You know, you can't spell lard without three of the letters in card. That's right. Words to live by. You you can't spell lard without three of. Why why isn't that on a t shirt? (laughs) You can't spell lard. You can't spell lard without three of the letters in the word card. (laughs) So he's Brandon Chastine. He's the scholar who's a baller of reading. My mom hates it when I make fat jokes. Brandon. Yeah. The only reason, folks, that I can make fat jokes is because Brandon is, in fact, not that fat. He will probably live to the age of 40. It's fine. We've got. Probably. We've got Jake Menzel. Yeah. The scholarly nope. fellow. Yeah. Who's well known as a fellow. pastor. 
who's a master of reading. Not a pastor, but the pastor who's a master of reading. The pastor who's a master of reading. And also can't take jokes nearly as well as Brandon, therefore doesn't get made fun of as much. Not as much. You do have that giant mole on your face. <laughs> 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 or is it a... <laughs> does a hair stick out of it? <laughs> it does. It's I, a wart with I don't remember. That's what it is. Jake gave us a whole explanation of moles and That's warts. Right. And which one has a hair? A uh, wart. No. Oh, wait. Yeah, Jake's got a wart so and it's covered in hair. Yes, that's right. Jake's got a wart and it's covered in hair. Guys, we're having fun, but what we really should be doing is having fun through a studious, insightful, and wise discussion of Henry V. the Fifth. Not Henry the Eighth. Although Henry VIII had seven wives before he married her. She'd been married seven times before. Henry VIII, I am. You're you're her eighth old man. You're Henry. That song has been stuck in my head all day, I will confess. And I won't sing it. I will save our listeners the trouble. Me too. I think you might have put it there. Probably. Although I don't remember doing that, but that's often how song transmission works. You just do it It without even thinking about it. Subconscious. Especially when it is me that's doing the transmitting. I tend to have things stuck in my head and hum them frequently. Now... Henry V, a play by William Shakespeare. And we have watched the, whatchamacallit, the, the Hollow Crown. Crown version with Tom Hiddleston. Hiddleston. Yes. Loki. But first, guys, <clears throat> I actually just realized we have something to address. What? One of our fans and supporters and a personal friend of all of ours, a, a person, a lady that we all know, one Had a beef with last week's episode on really? Henry the Fourth because I was saying like, yeah, false stuff, not that funny actually. Actually, a lot of Shakespeare comedy, not that funny. And then Jake was like, yeah, I was at a Shakespeare comedy reading thing. Oh, people didn't understand the joke. And so, my understanding is that Maya, Maya, Maya says a she was at this particular Shakespeare night. And she understands Shakespearean comedy, Jake. You don't have to explain nothing to her. And more importantly, she says, Shakespearean comedy's funny. What are you guys smoking? Or what's Nathan smoking? I don't even remember which one of us all said that. So. I don't believe I said that. You think Shakespearean comedy's hilarious. Yeah, turn on some Shakespeare. she messaged you to say that? She talked to the incandescent Meredith, a close personal friend of hers, and a close personal wife of mine. I do remember the conversation, and the point we made was that some Shakespeare, a lot of comedy deals with language, Mm -hmm. and that part of Shakespearean comedy is lost on us, and I think there's truth to that. That was the only point that I made. That doesn't mean that plays like Much Ado About Nothing are not funny. Yes, I would agree with that, especially when performed by Keanu Reeves. Yeah, Dogberry's hilarious. Especially when performed by good actors is what I was actually going to say. They can be I mean, I showed Jake a clip of- uh, The Incandescent Meredith cannot be trusted because one- Maya! Maya! Actually texted me about this and acknowledged that she didn't get the joke in the text. Oh, well, well, well. So- Maya! Hoisted on your own petard. Yes, I'm sorry. Just to clarify, though, I do think that Shakespeare, if you, if you go to see a good performance of Much Ado or Taming of the, or Merry Wives, or really any Shakespeare play, because they've all got comic, the Gravedigger scene in Hamlet, 
it's funny. And especially with a good actor, they can communicate volumes, even about the language, even the pun stuff. A really good actor can kind of make you get it on some level, even if you don't quite get well, it. Yeah, and especially if he's a British actor and he's going to be a little bit more close to something phonetically. Right. And, and I think I would also say about comedy in general, there's a music to come. There's a musicality to comedy. There's rhythm. There's timing. There's things like this. These things are actually part of what makes us laugh, even apart from the actual content of the joke. And so you can get a lot of that. A good performer can get all kinds of nuance like that into it effortlessly. Well, yeah. And it can be quite funny. I think that a lot of people who love, well, I know for a fact, a lot of people who love Much Do About Nothing in particular love the, Kenneth Branagh's interpretation. Right. right. Of the, the Keanu Reeves version, as I call it. Yeah, but especially... Michael Keaton. Michael Keaton's version of Dogberry, which is Right, and Michael Keaton's genius. a fantastic comedic actor. I think people forget now that he's doing these serious roles, like, the guy's a great comedian. That's how yeah. he started. You've seen it now, right? No, we ended up watching a different movie. All right, but his his interpretation, I showed you a clip. Yes, I, no, yeah, I, and I had seen that clip before. His interpretation's wonderful. Yeah, it's good bring, Yeah. Right. I don't know, but I don't think we're, we're going to do a Shakespearean comedy next year, but we'll have to do one soon so we can talk more about this. But I do not want young Maya to think that I do not like Shakespearean comedy. I do. I just want us always to approach these things with a kind of realistic outlook. I don't like to pretend like we get more than we actually do. There are things that are actually for most people who aren't Elizabethan scholars lost in translation for us. And I just think it's worth being real about that. Well, the pun that I was pointing out in Much Ado About Nothing, the only reason I really knew that is because I remember it from I was taught it somewhere. Right. I didn't catch the idea that noting and nothing. noting and nothing is a pun that he's playing with throughout the play. At some point in my life, I learned that's a fact that I learned, and therefore I'm able to was able to look at the play and you know see the puns there. E- even that noting and nothing are too far apart for me to have made that connection, unless I was really like into it and looking for stuff. You know. Right. 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 And probably all of us, even Brandon, who's more well-versed in these things, no pun intended, there's things that you just don't get or that... When we do Romeo and Juliet, there are all sorts of puns that I don't... And even at the beginning, it is a play on Collier and Collar. I think I mentioned that last time. Mm -hmm. I had to look it up. And once you have to look up a joke, it's not fun. Right. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, I I remember seeing, I don't know if it was like a documentary or just a little featurette or something like that about all the work at the Globe Theater where they have these performances of Shakespeare plays where they try to recreate the the dead accents, the, the way that people would have talked, must have talked in order for some of the puns that these scholars have identified. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With, you know, you have all these sort of colloquial meanings and implications like the Urban Dictionary type of stuff. You have to know it or you have to be so immersed in the whatever to understand that this is this is double entendre whatever and then they try to recreate you know how does this pun actually work what did the language actually sound like for this to work as a pun and then try to give these performances that sell the full comedy of shakespeare right that also nobody cares about because well and if i went to one of those performances i'd probably laugh a lot less than i would seeing kevin klein and michael uh, keaton just do something that's exactly by by a true Shakespearean's standards probably pretty obvious actually like what, right. they're, what they're doing is kind of base and slapstick and just obvious but it's funny because they're 
going to great pains to communicate what is funny, which is helpful to me because right. I'm not an Elizabethan. <sighs> well, I hope that answers your question, Maya, and keep on trucking. Let's talk about Henry the Fifth, guys. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> guys, I have a confession to make. Yes, Brandon? It's been a busy week for me. Mm -hmm. Lots of things have been going on. Okay, probably you were mostly busy reading up for the booking, watching yeah. the Tom Hiddleston version of Henry well, the Fifth. Well, so I was reading for the booking some, mm -hmm. actually for future bookings. Mm -hmm. And also I was reading for things that are tangentially related to the booking, but I don't think that we've announced any of it yet so no but we'll leave our listeners in suspense yeah. about those things and i didn't read i didn't watch the, i didn't watch the movies sorry uh -huh. i gotta let you guys down that's okay there's I a door right down. there you just turn the handle you pull it you walk through you pull it it's closed. pretty late so, we'll so i can just go home and go to bed i thought we were recording this several months ago so that's when i watched it yeah <laughs> can i can, so i can go home and go to bed no, oh. <laughs> no. <laughs> your punishment is you have to stay and talk about henry the fifth oh, I thought I'd get to go home. <laughs> well, the good news is I have seen the Kenneth Branagh version. Yeah, that's but pretty good have version. you seen Peter Jackson's Return of the King? Yes. Okay. Then I've seen... Then you've seen Henry V. Have you yeah. seen Bill Pullman give the great speech in Independence Day? Yeah. <laughs> then I've seen Henry V. Have you seen Gladiator? Yeah. Have you seen Braveheart? Yeah. Hmm. Have you seen Glory? Oh, yeah. Have you seen the speech in Hoosiers? Give us a speech right now. Are you right familiar now? with uh, the old win one for the Gipper? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Have you ever seen Rudy? Yeah. Remember the Titans? Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Oh, you remember them? I remember those Titans. Okay. Where are we going with this? Angels in the outfield. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no. All right. <laughs> ducks Great, fly again. <laughs> D3, the mighty Ducks. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's talk about Henry V. What do you guys think about Henry V? There may come a day when the courage of men may fail. We're going to talk about why the Aragorn speech sucks. This is my opportunity to get off my chest everything about that Aragorn speech that I don't like, which feels to me like a speech written by a couple of women, which it was, who don't understand what would actually motivate a giant crowd of men to fight orcs and die. <laughs> but we'll get there. Guys, Henry V, what do you think about it? Is it a good Shakespeare play? Is it a bad Shakespeare play? Is it in between? Is it, as I might say, just a collection of cool scenes without much connective tissue? What is this play, and what do you think about it? It's a weird one. Yeah? What's weird about it? Um, well, because you have the war that's happening for most of it, and then it ends with a scene with an act. I remember seeing this, so my baggage with this play yeah. is that this is one of the... I've seen a handful of Shakespeare at the parks. So in Texas, they... Oh man. Whatever. I think it would be Shakespeare's at the park. Yeah, it's like Shakespeare's Chalupa's at the Supreme. park. It's yeah, Shakespeare's at the park. I've seen a multi. I've seen many Shakespeare's at the park. Mm -hmm. Growing up in Texas, they had many Shakespeare's at the park, mm -hmm. and we would go to some of these. And one of them, one time, we went to see Henry V. The only way I know this is because I remember it was an awesome play about a battle until you got to the weird last act, mm -hmm. and then suddenly it becomes a love story, uh, a comedy of manners. Yeah, between yeah, yeah. two lovers. Yep. And he, I mean, being Shakespeare, he tries to weave this throughout the play. So you get that one scene with Catherine talking to her maids. Alice, yeah. Early on where she's, well, that's not early on. It's like, what, act three or something? Yeah, exactly, I think. Or, and uh, then you have, and she's suspecting that maybe she might need to learn some English. English. Mm -hmm. And so you, you get, the, which is also weird because, again, you have this sort of comedy of manners happening here between these two great speeches you have the speech 
rallying the troops Once before, more into the breach. Yeah, and then you have the St. Crispin's Day speech. Mm. What a speech, but also you wonder what in the world Shakespeare's doing. Like, is he trying to make war seem more homely? Or is he also trying to mix the... Or is he doing like a Tolstoy thing where he's showing the reality that all this war... This is what I you think can't, is... You can't, dis, you can't separate war. This is why I think you need to watch this version of it. Yeah. Because I grant that it's weird. You remember what the Hollow Crown does with Richard? Mm-hmm. Richard II, yeah. Right, where you've got this character that, unless you can pull together this like nobility and strength and real gravity and with with pull that together with this dissipated weak effeminate into one person unless you can harmonize those things what you have is sort of this schizophrenic feeling play where on the one hand he's pathetic on the other hand he's got these really great speeches that just seem thrown in there mm-hmm Right. This is what I always complain about Macbeth. Like suddenly he's a sadistic thug and it actually doesn't track with his relative nobility. Like how does this all go together? Yeah. And the, the genius of the hollow crown is that Ben Wishaw pulls it all together into what feels like a coherent person. Right. Yeah. From start to finish. The hollow crown version of Henry V mm-hmm. does a very similar thing. Um, Nathan and I were talking about it earlier and he was making the point where he, he had watched several versions of Henry V, and maybe I should just let you tell the story, but no, go for I'm it. telling it. Yeah. Where the way they were performed, you've got this sort of like very human Henry who has these love scenes, but all of a sudden he also has these speeches that he pulls out of his back pocket that he spent all night working on. Well, I will insert here that there's a famous version from 44, I think, that Laurence Olivier did, a filmed version for Britain. And yeah. what you can tell when you watch this version is that they were in a middle of the middle of the war against Hitler. And so the whole thing is national pride. And Olivia A delivers the heck out of those speeches, but it to me completely yanks me out of the movie because you can tell Olivier's not doing it as Henry. He's, he's doing, doing it, it as Olivier. He's doing it as Olivier for Britain, who needs a morale boost as Hitler's at this exact moment bombing the crap out of them. Like yeah. and it's great. It's it's an interesting historical artifact. But it doesn't really hold up as a movie. I'm sure it was very effective. It was. It was a popular version, right? And people loved it. But it doesn't really work because it's like suddenly he's going to give the St. Crispin's Day speech. And it's like, oh, here's a guy giving a speech. And he knows it's the greatest speech of all time. He knows he's delivering Shakespeare's, you know, one yeah. of the best pieces of writing by maybe the greatest writer to ever live. Like it's it's weighted with all that that portent, with all that meaning, with all that gravity. And it doesn't feel like something that somebody actually just came up with and said on the spot. Yeah. Now, what what Hiddleston does and what they do in this one is they make it super understated mm-hmm. so that it just feels like he, here's the king. He's out in war and he's got to motivate the guys to go to the breach or he's got to deliver a some, speech. Some dude just so said, I got, wish we had a bunch of people here. It would sure be better. And he's like, ah. Uh. Yeah. And then he just starts talking but you know actually it would be better if we didn't have a bunch of guys here because we 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 get the glory that's right yeah and so it just feels very much like it feels very much like it feels like podcasting to me actually <laughs> that's what i thought of because sometimes we will go through an entire podcast and we will never you know it'll be fine it'll be good podcast but there won't be that moment where we just got on a roll and then sometimes something will spark our fancy and we'll all be talking over each other and it'll be glorious. Like we'll just achieve like this, the synthesis of thought, of idea, of emotion, and we'll all be 
expressing ourselves and it'll feel really articulate and great. And he actually captured that kind of a feeling of, oh crap, I have a problem. I need to say something to inspire the guys. I'm going to start, I'm going to pick up steam and then I'm going to find myself accidentally giving the greatest speech speech of all time. Yeah. And in the moment, well, even then in the moment, it doesn't feel like the greatest speech of all time. It to me feels much more, I don't know, when we were talking about it earlier, I was comparing it to sort of how Lewis makes battle feel prosaic. And then he yes. describes these these moments on the battlefield that would later go down, or we would even see other... Like, his name is Peter Wolfsbane. He's the guy that defeated the wolf. And then the actual yeah, battle's like, like, yeah, well, the wolf fell on my sword. <laughs> and exactly. I was an idiot yeah. and I forgot to clean And it. I didn't even know how yeah. it happened. Yeah. You don't even know how it happened, right? But that's the thing. And now you're Peter Wolfsbane, and centuries later, that's what people remember about you: is you slay, you slayed the wolves and saved the princess, and right. But in the moment, it was actually a pretty clumsy sort of thing. You were just doing work, and you were actually doing it awkwardly. Yeah, and so uh, the way that they pitch this, the way that they perform, that Hiddleston performs these speeches, is he's in this moment of. I've got to be the king. Right. I've got to inspire the people to go into the breach or else this all falls apart. I got to inspire people to go die on this battlefield and lose or win or whatever. But he reaches deep down and finds something real and true. Because he is in fact the king. Because he, he really is. He's, he's he got really the is the king. Yeah. And truly yeah. inspires the men to the great victory that they, they achieve. And then what felt like this sort of pathetic thing that really did ring a note becomes this thing that actors like Laurence Olivier belt out on the stage. That approach to this play really, I think, harmonizes even that final act where it's really just about this guy who's figuring out what it means to be a king and to lead men in battle and to court a lover and to do it as a king behind a crown and who actually is a kind of a truly great guy after all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost becomes Fifty Shades of Henry. It's like, yeah. here's what he's like in court. Here's what he's like in battle. Here's when he what well, he's like when he's down and out. Here's what he's like in victory. And here's what he's like wooing a woman. And it's all very different, but it's all united by his nobility, his pragmatism, because he is a pragmatic dude. And it's all meant to show you that this still is the same Henry who was from Henry the Fourth. Yes, right. Now this is Prince Hal because you have that's the whole point of having pistol and. Uh, the guy Bard- who gets hung. Uh, is it Bardoff? Or- or- is it Bardoff? I forget. Yeah. Yeah, they've got but the names. scene where he is sentenced to death, he's the only yep. guy that dies mm-hmm. after yep. the famous speech. Right. Henry's just like, yeah, that's right. We shouldn't right. be desecrating the French. We should treat the French stuff with utmost respect. Mm-hmm. And even though in Henry IV, we knew that he had been rous- carousing with these guys, here he is, he's a different man, and he doesn't even blink an eye. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's interesting to me about all of this is that this is the exact play and these are the exact speeches that I've heard Tom Hiddleston himself talk about and I've made into a whole philosophy of writing. So it's interesting to me. So I remember very vividly, I don't know how long ago now, but if you've listened to the bookending um, and especially our Shakespeare episodes, you've probably, probably for as long as we've been doing them, you've heard me talk about this exact idea. It's always with once more into the breach. It, where it's yeah. All, yeah. And it's always with once more into the breach. And it was, I think it was Hiddleston talking about once more into the breach and talking about how 
you can't lose right. with that speech. There's no wrong way to do it. The words themselves carry the speech so much that you can perform it any way you like mm-hmm. in itself because it's just that good. Right. We have turned that into a whole philosophy of, of writing writing di- when it comes to writing dialogue for something like the Ville, the dialogue should be so good that it is actor proof and it's not that yeah. we don't have good actors if you're listening actors but no but the, our right. goal is to make it actor proof our job is to make it so good that you can have a bad day and it's still gonna work right it's we could what... we could cast the wrong person it's still gonna work and then if we've achieved that goal that, I mean, that makes our that gives our actors that much more opportunity to shine because what it does is it sets a it sets the floor right really high, and so then they can have even fun if with you it. stink at performing it, it's still going to come off pretty great. But if you can nail it, you can like do something really cool. you can do something really cool and special with it, but you're not going to sound stupid, you know. And that frees you to take risks with it because there are all kinds of ways that you can. do That's what we want to achieve in writing dialogue for something like The Ville, and that's really at least to my mind, always been based on this idea of, hey, that's what Shakespeare did. Right. And, hey, that really works. Like, I defy you to read Once More Into the Breach in a way that sucks. I mean, I, mean, I think you could really actually just completely, under, you, could, you could literally, I think, do a, do a credible psychological portrait where you just said, Once More Into the Breach, my friends. I know. Like, that in itself, it just really... I could give myself chills thinking about what is behind that kind of yeah a reading. Take a drag one, on a cigarette and exactly you know, once once more into the breach. Yeah, there's a way to do just, that. That's it, completely credible and it's not stretching. It's just the line does the work. Like yeah. So what's interesting about this whole conversation is with that speech in particular, you really can you can give it any way imaginable. Mm-hmm. What you might not be able to do is give it one imaginable way and then turn around and deliver the rest of Henry's lines in a very different. Yeah. You're going to be teasing this French girl at the end. How does that guy, you, you, what you have to do is synthesize it somehow. Yeah. An actor. And you're going to say, kill the prisoners. I mean, you're going to, you're going to go, you're going to go from, Hey town, we will rape you if you don't surrender right now. Like that's a speech that Henry gives. Yeah. And then you, you're like, Oh, well, tennis balls. Well, we'll play tennis on your heads, you know. <laughs> or where he command, well, he thinks that what the French are about to rally. And so he orders that they all kill. The yeah, French when he kills the prisoners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so trying to. Who is that mesh. guy that can be that yeah. pragmatic and that cold? And also. Well, this is, this is one of the fun parts about reading Shakespeare and also reading him with students is mm-hmm. trying to figure out. So Shakespeare doesn't. What's, what's difficult with Shakespeare is. And so. It's truly difficult. Yeah. Yeah. With some of my, we're reading the Scarlet Letter mm-hmm. and Hawthorne spells everything out for you. He'll right. even stop and he'll say, okay, if you're not understanding so far, let's take a step back. Here's what's going through Demisdell's head. Right. It's like you're reading. And here's the kind of man who Demisdell is. Here's who you should think he is. You, Hawthorne you wrote his me? own cliff notes, basically. Yeah. He's like, yeah. are you with me? Are you with me? Okay. Now we can move on. Mm-hmm. Shakespeare doesn't do that for you. And, and instead, he forces you to struggle with like Romeo and Juliet. You have to struggle with Romeo and like, and a bunch of people think that Romeo is the hero and all that, but that's just because they're misreading and they're not trying to synthesize everything about Romeo mm-hmm. to actually figure out who this character is. And if you were to portray Romeo in an accurate way, how would you have to do it? He becomes the villain. He becomes the scoundrel. 
Yeah, and that's part of the thing about a play in and of itself is unless there's a whole lot of stage direction, which Shakespeare never never gives stage direction. Yeah. Like in White also it's so difficult to just come cold to reading a Shakespeare play. Right. Like I don't really think this is maybe at the root of a lot of the difficulty that we've had with Shakespeare in talking about, you know, whether it's Macbeth or whatever it is. Right. Like it really depends on your first read of that play can't be your final read of that play no, it if you're going to comment on it. You have to read the whole of it. You have to wrap your head around it. You have to wrap your head around all of the characters. And then you've got to, you have to do some of the work yourself of figuring out how it synthesizes, how it plays. How does Macbeth become this or that? How does, you know, Henry deliver a Christmas Day speech and do all these different things without feeling schizophrenic? How does Richard do all these things without feeling schizophrenic? If he's a king, he's going to get a speech. Right. Right? So how's he going to give that speech while also being a villain here or there or whatever else he's got to do? Right. Like, that's work that was always going to be put on the on both the director and the actors of those plays to figure out. And if Shakespeare was the one who was directing... And he would have just said, ah, well, he's the bad he, guy. He, he's yeah. explaining all of this as he goes, and then he puts the play in the folio, and he doesn't expect... Well, he doesn't need stage direction for himself. What I think is fascinating is you'll buy a modern edition of Shakespeare. Often, they will include just a little bit of extra stage direction. Like, actually, he's exiting with this prop, or actually, this guy is dying, and it's stuff that's in brackets. Right. Like, I think I've often had the Barnes & Noble's edition for whatever reason. And they'll put these little bracketed statements in just to help you make visual sense of what's going on. Like yep. Henry took this prop with him, which makes a big difference. Like that's why, and it's, it is inherent in the dialogue, but for a dummy like me, even you'll just having a little bracketed explanation of this is actually what's supposed to be happening here can be really helpful. Yeah. But you know what I actually thought when you were talking was I thought a statement that I'm sure will give all of our classical education kind of Charlotte Mason listeners a chill. But I think it's true. Understanding Shakespeare is, in fact, the work of a lifetime. One of the jobs of the well-educated person, and nope, not everybody has to undertake it if they don't want to, but is to understand Shakespeare. And you can't just read Hamlet and get it. There yeah. is enough. I mean, we've said all kinds of things about literature not being this deep idolatrous thing that we just worship at the altar of right we've said all that but let me now just say something else <laughs> which is shakespeare's deep like there's a lot there it takes he was a genius right he was he packed a lot into and it takes time and effort to unpack it and to understand it and to scrub away the years and to suddenly see what it was that he was getting at about human nature it actually takes time you cannot actually just sit down with one of these things read it cold not give it that much thought and get one one percent of what's there which is why i really think that you know people you have to be a pretty stone cold genius to be able to just read shakespeare and get shakespeare on in one sitting what i think people ought to do with shakespeare is they ought to watch three to five to eight interpretations and performances of and then maybe read it and then maybe read it. so you can it. hone in on some of that stuff but first you got to get the plot and you got to understand what's going on then you got to get the characters then you got to hone in on the famous speeches then you have to understand all the idiots and do, I mean, it's like you here, can do a different path here's the thing about one performance of shakespeare one performance of shakespeare 
If it's an earnest performance of Shakespeare, every actor, no matter how smart or stupid they are, they're really trying to get that one character right. Mm -hmm. They're really putting thought and effort into getting that one character right. And so you, and then you've got a director who's directing the performance, and he's put a lot of thought and effort into getting this playwright, into getting all of these characters right. So you have the collective work of a whole bunch of people putting their minds together to make this play work and to really get all of these characters right and to really get these scenes right. The lazy ones, they cut scenes or they reinterpret scenes or they add something in where they just don't want to do the work of figuring out what's great about this scene. Or they bring their own like, well, if this guy was just gay, then that makes sense of it to our modern sensibilities. Yeah, exactly. But you got to do some work and see some different interpretations to even figure that sort of thing out. Like, yeah, you have to find your footing first, which means immersing yourself in it and in, in giving yourself to it. I mean, I thought so. an example from this play of what we're talking about is the very first scene where Canterbury, I think it is, an mm-hmm. ally, they're just setting the stage and talking, well, Henry's a used to be a reprobate, but now he's good. And there's a potential war brew. You know, there's just like this exposition dump between these two guys. There's a part in the performance in the hollow crown. I think Canterbury says, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to talk to Henry and I'm going to figure it out. And Eli says, I'll wait upon you. And I long to hear it. I wrote the line down because that's such a generic line. If you just read it, I was actually reading what I like to do is watch a performance. And I recommend this actually watch a performance Take advantage of modern technology, turn the subtitles on so you can read along with it, and then have the play in your hand so that you can see how they're adapting it. That's a fun way to to get the most bang for your buck from any movie version. But the guy says, the line is just this boring line, I'll wait upon you and I long to hear it. The way the actor delivers it in this particular performance is completely sarcastic. It's as if he already knows what's going to happen. You know, he raises his eyebrows and says, I'll wait upon you and I long to hear it. And it actually does make sense of what's going on. I can't recreate the moment for us now. But I say I bring that up, I think, only to illustrate the kind of interpretive choices that if you watch the movie, you just assume, oh, well, of course, that's a sarcastic line because the guy does delivers it that way perfectly. I don't know whether that's inherent in Shakespeare or not, but it certainly does make sense of what's going on between those two characters in that particular moment. A good experiment with this is to watch the to be or not to be speech mm-hmm. with Hamlet and see how many different interpretations there are. Yeah. And so I, I've done this before and like there's, oh, for example, there's, what's his name? Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson. Branagh. Fairly emotional mm-hmm. take on it. But then you have Branagh who kind of brings out the malevolence of Hamlet. Yeah. Like this Dressed is, in black looking into a mirror. This is, yeah, exactly. This is him sort of dealing with his inner demons and giving himself to them. And then there's my favorite, which is Benedict Cumberbatch's version, which brings out like this inner torment of mm-hmm. what's going on. This he's guy is like, existential crisis. The yeah, ultimate existential crisis. Not even existential crisis. It's just he's reached the end of his ropes. He doesn't right. know what to do. Right, he's just, he's been defeated. He doesn't know, he doesn't even know how to move on. And we've got good old Olivier, who's in a leotard on a battle met, saying, to be or not to be. That's right, yeah. <laughs> Olivier was a great, better Shakespearean actor than I'll ever be, folks. I'm not making fun of him, but it's just funny to contemplate older styles of things. I'm sure yeah. it worked well for the time. Let's get into this particular play a little bit more. Okay. So, was, here's my first question. Is Henry... I mean, I think a lot of interpretations or takes on this play that I've read, uh, they say this is actually a portrait of an ideal king. Is it? 
Henry seems like a bit of a pragmatist. There's all the stuff with the lineage at the beginning and the French, you know, lands passed to this person who was a woman. And so actually it wouldn't and blah, 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 blah. Are we supposed to think that Henry is in the right when he starts this war? Or are we actually seeing the idea that actually every their politics are complicated and everybody kind of bends the rules to their own advantage? And that's actually what the English are doing, just as bad as the French. There's actually the part where Henry, he says something like, we're no tyrant, but a Christian king. And, you know, we, 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 we want to make sure that we have, a, we have a right to this stuff. And then the guy says, yeah, 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 yeah. And then he goes ahead with the invasion. But are we supposed to understand that Henry's actually in the right? Are we supposed to rally, like in the Olivia ver- a version? Are we supposed to say Britain, rah, rah, rah? Or are we supposed to feel some some shades of gray as far as the British claim goes. It would be pretty obviously that it's the British claim, rah, 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 Britain, if it weren't for the representation of Charles VI. Right. He's not portrayed as a bad dude. He's actually portrayed as a fairly even-handed, pretty level-headed guy who's not the villainous foil to uh, Henry. Well, what you get the sense of uh, the uh, um, not to ride the hollow crown interpretation too hard, right? But my memory, and I should say, it really has been a couple of months. I apologize. Well, folks, since, have mercy on us. We do this because we love it, but sometimes, and to keep our schedule up, we'll read something, and then suddenly Narnia will hit, and we'll do, and then we just weeks won't and have months the of Narnia, and we and we love to, to do that. But I mean, yeah. yeah. We've got to fit these things in, like around our wives and kids and stuff. I mean, yeah. So I I don't want to lean too hard on the Hollow Crown's interpretation, but the way that the Hollow Hollow Crown interpretation of that, to my memory, plays is it may be that the guy who's like you, we're well within our rights, is sort of fudging things. Or but Henry, whether he's wanting, he's a little too willing to accept that or not really does seem to believe it. Yes. And so it plays, whether or not the cause itself is fully just, it plays as if Henry's convinced it is or wants to be convinced it is. And I think that that's a smart way to play it in light of how Charles VI VI is played. Right. How do they play him in? He seems like a reasonable, the Dauphin is played as kind of a jerk. Yeah, the the Dauphin's evil. He's just out for blood. Yeah. But the... The, um, what's Charles isn't Charles is he just seems like a reasonable king when he says our, when you know the kings refer to it my brother England my brother France it actually does feel like a match of equals kind of thing there yeah I don't know I would say I almost want to use like the argument that people use about Jesus you know the old he was either a madman or he was who he said he was thing Henry for one thing calls on the name of God in the service of his cause so much that really your two choices in terms of interpretation are either he's completely a cynical, pragmatist, Machiavellian schemer who just wants what he wants, or he's a man who he's believes sincerely in the nobility of what he's doing. Those are kind of your two choices. There's not a yeah. lot of in between. And when it, yeah, I think that's right. And when it comes to that, then the choice is clear. Right. Shakespeare's given us a believer. Yeah, this is a good man. Yeah. What did you guys think about those tennis balls? <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Biggest tennis ball-related meltdown since old, uh, what's her name? Serena. Serena Serena Williams. Williams. 
Yep. Oh, burn. Sick burn. She's wearing her cat suit. Yep, yep. The French. The French. Yep, exactly. The French and their tennis balls. They're always yep. causing the meltdowns of great heroes yep. like Henry or Serena Williams. That's my incredibly hot take and incredibly uh, relevant commentary. Yeah. I do think that that's, that's a great sick burn when he says, oh, yeah, thanks for the tennis balls. We'll play tennis. On your face. <laughs> Basically, that's, that's what his speech was. It's a little more clever. Than yeah, it was a little bit more clever than that. But this is the essence of a witty comeback, folks. What you do is you do not deny the premise of what the bad guy said. You accept it. Like, oh, yeah, but thanks you, for the tennis but balls. But you turn it. But you turn it. Yeah, you just add like a twist to it. Yeah, um, I'm no. drunk, but uh, in yeah. the morning I'll be sober yeah, and you'll <laughs> still be fat and ugly. Right. Yeah. That kind of thing, you know. You gotta you you take their premise and you twist it, and that's what Shakespeare is really good. Right up there with Aaron Sorkin, almost as good as Aaron Sorkin. <laughs> almost. <laughs> if only he were. If only he were. Then we yeah. get Act Two. Just kind of take us through the play here, I guess. Yeah. Um, where Falstaff died. Poor Falstaff. Wah, wah, Who cares? <laughs> Nobody in this <laughs> play cares at all. Yeah. Why do you think Shakespeare did that? Like. Is he actually taking seriously the dissipation and the disillusion and the is like actually Falstaff kind of sucked? It's like, is, is is that the message or is it just like let's get rid of this character? We don't need him. Character, we don't need him here. But that doesn't seem to be a, of a piece with the fact that Shakespeare feels more interested in no, Falstaff. You no, know, it does because what he has to do because he's so interested in Falstaff, but he needs to tell the story of Henry the Heroic. Right. He needs to get Falstaff out of the picture so that we can focus on Henry the Heroic and not feel yeah. bad about Falstaff. Yeah, but that's like if in The Return of Jafar we said, the genie died, by the way. <laughs> Forget about the genie. Like, this is Aladdin's story now. The popular- Did you just pull a Return of Jafar? Yes, reference? I did. <laughs> I, we only talk about quality. <laughs> we only do quality polls here. <laughs> oh, Lord of the Rings 2, Gimli died. Nobody cares about him. He's not interesting. You know, it's like the breakout character. Not that Gimli was ever the breakout no. character. My first poll was better. About? The second Aladdin movie. You know what? We want to make this about Aladdin. So we're just going to kill the genie. It, it does not feel like a good business move. Like everybody loves Falstaff. He's hilarious. He's awesome. We're just going to kill him off off stage. We're not even going to give him like a good drunken, funny death scene. Well, if you're going to come back with Merry Wives or whatever, Falstaff comes back. Yeah, he can do a prequel, I guess. Yeah, he can. Up. <clears throat> yeah, just get rid of him off stage. You fine. still get the pistol stuff, right? Pistols. Yeah, but pistols, like, every, my life's been ruined. I guess I'll be a pimp. <laughs> so pistol's great arc in this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's kind of great. Like, all these comedic kind of characters. I mean, it's like, oh, darn, the... Coyote couldn't get the road winner, so he went into prostitution. <laughs> you know, it's like it's <laughs> oh, these kind of lovable scoundrels are like not so lovable in this one. Some of them are. Well, I think that that's part of what Shakespeare's doing here is that these scoundrels you thought were lovable, they really are scoundrels, huh? They, yeah, they really are scoundrels. They deserve to be hung, and Henry has to come to terms with that. No, he doesn't have to come to terms with it. There's no, like, pathetic... That's the thing. He yeah. doesn't have to come to terms with it for Falstaff. It's a cheat. Well, let's it's get Falstaff out of the way. It's the so biggest Henry. cheat of the whole play is that Falstaff just dies. That's interesting, yeah. And it, 
and it's I think it's a cheat because he loves Falstaff and because he knows everybody else does too. So he just cheats that. He cuts that corner. The so, story logic here is Falstaff doesn't repent and we're going to lead to a showdown where Falstaff really has to be punished. So let's just shuffle him off stage. We, nobody wants that, right. least of all me. So let's shuffle him off stage. Right. Just That's dies. what I think happened. Don't you get, there's some sense that he's on his deathbed because of something Henry did. Yeah, he actually does have some sympathy for Falstaff. Falstaff, they, they, they talk about Falstaff saying, the king has killed my heart. Yeah. So they actually do make Falstaff remain sympathetic to the end, and we feel a little bit bad about the fact that Henry's treated him this way, actually. And, yeah, but it's there and it's over. It's there and it's over, and then we forget about him. Exactly. I think it's a clever cheat, and it basically works, and it saves... Look, if he had come to the place where Falstaff really gets what he deserves. Right. That retroactively, what does that do retroactively to Falstaff? Or what does that do to his ability to bring Falstaff back for another comedy? Right. Like he doesn't want that to happen. Yeah. Right. And so he kills him off stage. And I think, you know what? He's Shakespeare. That's his prerogative. Yeah, Shakespeare. I could, give him that yes. cheat. <laughs> I'm, you know what? But it's a cheat. You convinced me Shakespeare. Well, I think, yeah, he's the best cheater in the business. Brennan? Yeah. We're, we're getting to the once more into the breach speech, but I thought as a point of comparison, I'd have you read a great speech, which should be on your phone right now. Okay. If you just want to read this bad boy, uh, give it all the actorly emphasis. Jake, you're going to get to read one too. But yeah. I think Brandon, just by random dint of uh, <coughs> me, me copying and pasting, I think Brandon might get to read the greatest speech in all of art and entertainment. Good morning. In less than an hour. Aircraft oh, from here will join others I from can around quote the world. This without reading it. And you'll be launching the largest aerial battle in this history of mankind. Mankind. That word should have new meaning for all of us today. We can't be consumed by our petty, petty differences, differences anymore. anymore. We will be united in our common interests. Wow. Perhaps it's fate that today is the 4th of July. Brennan, stop right there. Our listeners are probably so chilled right now. They just, they just, they need a reprieve. So let's. All right, go on. Reprieve. Reprieve, yeah. And you will once again be fighting for our freedom, not from not tyranny, tyranny, oppression, oppression, or persecution, but from, from aliens. Annihilation. <laughs> annihilation. From annihilation. From aliens, But from yeah. invaders from the sky. <laughs> but from annihilation. But from slimy green men. Say it right. But from annihilation. Brendan, <laughs> we take great literature seriously. We're fighting for our right to live to exist and should we win the day the 4th of july will no longer be known as an american holiday but as the day when the world declared in one voice we will not go quietly into the night we will not vanish without a fight we're going to live on we're going to survive today we celebrate our independence day Yay! <laughs> Woo! I have to say, bring the music, baby. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Um, what a great speech! What a great speech! I'm sorry to have to follow that off with once more into the breach. But... <laughs> oh man! <clears throat> right, what's my? Uh, did I get to do the best speech in all of cinema? Yes, Jake. I've actually got three speeches here. So... Oh, good. Do I get to read them all? Well, you can. I mean, Brandon just read one of them. I will let well, you. Went... Yeah. I will let you give uh, a speech that we have often made reference to. I'm sure you can. I truly love the one that Brandon read. I don't care what anybody says. You know, as he was reading it, I was like, you know what? That's a good speech. (laughs) It's fine. (laughs) 
<laughs> if there were really were alien invaders, like that would be a good legit speech. Not yeah. everything in that movie is uncheesy, but all right, Jake, you get to read a speech that I'm just gonna say it. I think it's a bad speech, but go ahead. Oh no, yeah. <laughs> this I can't believe that. I just can't believe that this happened. Yeah. To this. Go ahead. Day. Yeah. <sighs> Sons of Gondor, of Rohan, my brothers, I see in your eyes the same fear that would take the heart of me. A day may come when the courage of men fails, when we forsake our friends and break all bonds of fellowship. But it is not this day, an hour of wolves and shattered shields, when the age of men comes crashing down. But it is not this day. This day we fight. By all that you hold dear on this good earth, I bid you stand, men of the West, for Frodo. <laughs> for Frodo. Uh, for, Frodo. for Frodo. You only live one. Um, <laughs> yeah. As the great meme. The great meme. <laughs> yeah. YOLO. YOLO. Oh, <laughs> uh, guys, what? what? I Ma- sent that meme to a friend of ours recently. Yes, I've. Uh, I think I've said that same meme to that same friend. <laughs> um, guys, once more into the breach. Is YOLO a, a meme with that speech? Yeah, people just put YOLO on. It's, it says Frodo, right? Yeah. He, you know, it's that moment. Yeah. He looks back at Gandalf and he says, for Frodo. And then he leads that charge, you mm, know, yeah. and everybody, like he gets like 20 yards ahead, ahead of everybody. So yeah. in the gift. It's YOLO. You know, somebody puts yellow under it instead of Frodo. And it. So, we've got that great speech by President Whitmore. Yeah. Is that his name? <laughs> yes, that is his name. Okay. <laughs> we've got that great speech by Aragorn. Yeah. And then we'll talk about both Breach and St. Grisman's Day here. What speech are you about to read, Nathan? Um. Well, okay. I'll, you want me to read the other speech? I wasn't even yeah. going to do anything with it, but I'll read a speech. This is probably speech that most people think that Aragorn was actually, I think if most people were asked what was Aragorn keying off of, they would say this speech more before they would say anything from Henry V. All right, I'll give you guys nine guesses what speech this is from. Sons of Scotland, I am William Wallace. Maybe. William Wallace is seven feet tall. Yes, I've heard. Kills men by the hundreds, and if he were here, he'd consume the English with fireballs from his eyes and bolts of lightning from From his his arse. arse. I am William Wallace, and I see an army of my countrymen here in defiance of tyranny. You've come to fight as free men, and free men you are. What would you do with that freedom? Will you fight? Fight? Against that? No, we will run, and we will live. Aye, fight, and you may die. Run, and you'll live, at least a while. And dying in your beds, many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for one chance? Just one chance to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. Yay. All right, guys, here's my question. What makes a good speech to inspire people to do something? What does Shakespeare understand about this? And we will fold the St. Crispin's Day speech. So basically, the once more into the breach, it's like, guys, we're Englishmen. We're, we've got honor. We're awesome. Like, let's do this for Henry. And then St. Crispin's Day, it's like, no, we don't want more people. We want the glory for ourselves. Like, people will hold their manhood cheap if they're not here. So you got that. And then you got this stupid Aragorn speech where he's like, well, I can see that you're all scared. And I'm scared too. 
And one day we could fail miserably, but yeah, it doesn't have to be today. Written by women, I note. Was it? Make what of that what you will. But guys, what is it that Shakespeare understands? Or does maybe Shakespeare sucks? Maybe, Brandon, no. you, you want to say Shakespeare doesn't get it. And Aragorn I, gets it. Yeah. You know what? I'm going to go out on a limb and say that Shakespeare, he gets it. All right, Jake, no, let's see. I, boingy, I, boingy, boingy, boingy. Huh, the limb, the limb's very strong. It's, it's not breaking. Sturdy limb. I think, I <laughs> <laughs> I think you might be able to stay on this tree for some time. <laughs> okay, it is what the Braveheart speech does. They do the same thing. Right. Braveheart understands what is great about that Crispin's Day speech, which is that little moment of, hey, yeah, you might live, but one day you're going to die. And when you die, you're going to regret having walked away from this fight. Right. You'll have lived a peaceful life, maybe, and you'll have traded your opportunity for glory and for freedom. And you'll live with a guilty conscience for the rest of your days. And you'll wonder what could have happened if I would have fought for something I actually believed in. And you don't want to die with that on your conscience. You don't want to die with that opportunity being missed. And so here on Crispin's Day, you're looking at impossible odds. We're all going to die here. We're all going to die. And so what's going to motivate me and make me go and die with honor and valor? Just the hope that I, my death means something and it stands for something. And should we win the day, what a glorious day that would be. I can do that. If we're going to die anyway, tell me that it means something. Tell me that it's glorious. Tell me that if God is in his heaven and our cause is just, we just might win anyway. And if we do, it'll be for his glory and to ours. And history will tell of this day for your years to come. And if not, so what? We died doing the right thing. Yeah. Like what blood. battle are we going to fight? <laughs> oh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> well, Let's go do it. <laughs> well, that, it's that's like the, we It's need. like the little pull quote on the Braveheart poster, every man dies. Not every man really lives. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean. And then you come true, to though. Aragorn and it's like, well. <laughs> no, Aragorn is everything that's wrong about our modern cowardly effeminate age. It's, I am going to inspire you by saying, I'm just as dumb and weak and cowardly as you are. And so let's all be dumb and weak and cowardly and realize we're scared together. And I admit that a certain amount of that is charming or good or <laughs> helpful in a leader. We should be honest about our sins and failures. But also we need somebody at the end of the day to say, ask not what you can do or what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for somebody to take us outside of ourselves and say, what is the common cause? Here's something bigger than you. It's bigger, right. You could die for this and that's okay. And it's something worth dying for. Right. That's what people on that battle line need to hear. Some of you, it's a, you could die today. This is a cause worth dying for. This is a cause that you don't want to walk away from. Right. You'll be ashamed if, you had, if you've walked away from this fight. You'll come to your deathbed and you'll wish, you'll wish with every fiber of your being that you would have died on that battlefield rather than die peacefully in your grave knowing you had walked away from this battle a coward. That's what you need to hear. Right. You want your grandchildren to know that you stood for something. And if you, if you don't have grandchildren or children yet, then it's better not to have them 
than to have them and for them to know you as the coward that you are, that you can't look at, that you, who wants grandchildren that you can't look in the eye for shame. No man wants that. Not really. He thinks he does in the moment, but let's put him on his deathbed when he has to reckon with all he's done in his life that actually means something. Mm-hmm. Well, in Aragorn's speech is, eh, none of our grandchildren really like us that much, and they'll probably hate us anyway, but maybe today we can do something good. That might be nice. Which is <laughs> 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 <just> so lame. <laughs> let's hope. Keep your fingers crossed. I mean, I really just think it is a relational speech. The, the screenwriters of The Lord of the Rings are women, and if people get us up to a thousand bucks, I'm sure we'll talk about this more next year. But- I think it's a very womanly speech. It's like everything about Aragorn actually is is effeminate. Yes, absolutely. The Tolkien's Aragorn and Jackson's Aragorn and the disparity between the the two of them is the single biggest. Maybe I mean that might be overstatement, but I'm, it's a big weakness and a I'm, big flaw. Yeah, I'm willing to right now go out on a limb and say it's maybe the biggest failure of Jackson's. Sort of well, the interesting Aragorn's thing is that you've got security. You've got Viggo yeah. Mortensen who yeah. does a great job of playing like he could have played Tolkien's character perfectly he does he brings a lot of manly dignity to the role but then he's asked to play these dumb emo scenes anyway we can talk more about that next year I hope or sometime but get us to 1000 they they did some good things with both Boromir and Sam so far I'm reading it with my kids we love it I don't know that I've read anything where my kids have asked to skip movie night to read wow (laughs) Until the Lord of the Rings. Oh man, that's fun, folks! Get us up to a thousand dollars. We, w- I know we were a little hard on Narnia, but I think it might just be a love fest for Tolkien. Uh, um, I well, uh, yeah. Look, I think it could be. The Hobbit's I, I'm amazing. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna tolerate anything but a love fest. I don't think the fact that my kids are so into this book that it's like, I'm, I, or these books that it's like. If we have spare time, that's what we want to do. And yeah. we're going to be willing to forgo That's movie weird. Night. Like, what magic pixie dust does this guy have? I want to talk about that. Folks, un- take our shackles off. Release us from Let the lines of Let us talk about this book. Yes. The Hobbit. Yes. Yeah. One day we will talk about Tolkien, but today I think is not that day. Is if I had to choose, day. I'm going to say right now, mm-hmm. if I had to choose between preserving The Hobbit or all seven... Narnia books, I would choose The Hobbit. There you go. What if you had to choose between watching The Desolation of Smaug a thousand times or having a hammer smash your pinky? <laughs> just once? <laughs> just uh, just once. Yeah. I mean, it'll heal. But you're, no, my... it won't heal. You're losing your pinky. In a oh, very fine, whatever. The hammer smashed my pinky. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that useful of a finger. It's really not. It's it really depends not. on which hand. Um, it does depend on which hand. It's your dominant hand. Yeah, I still lose it. <laughs> <laughs> it actually doesn't depend on which hand. And it's the extended version of Desolation of yeah. Smaug. Oh, it's gone. <laughs> it's <a> pinky. <laughs> now with 20% more barrels. Um, <laughs> oh, listen, folks, I think listen to Jake and listen to Henry and listen to Shakespeare. If you're a father and you need to motivate your family to do something, what you don't do is say, don't be Aragorn and say, well, you know, actually we're all wimpy and yeah. don't do that. Say, here is the cause. Here is the thing that is bigger than us, that is more glorious than us. If you're a boss, if you're a person, you know, if you're an authority guy, a guy in authority, point people to what it's all about. 
that's what you do to inspire people. Yeah. <sighs> that Braveheart speech probably is the best speech in film. Well, Jake, what about Thomas Whitmore's speech? President Thomas Whitmore, I should say, in Independence Day. It's fun, but you can make yourself cry thinking about the Braveheart speech. Yeah, like you can live today and you can go and on your deathbeds, what are you going to think? It is great. It is great. And I think, if I'm remembering correctly, that legend has it that the real William Wallace said at least that, the, you know, the famous phrase. Something like that. You can live your, uh, yeah, what's it, what is it? I can't, I can't even pull it right now. Uh, <laughs> you can, they can take our lives, but they can never take our freedom. Yeah, that's the idea of any great war speech, like in the Alamo, the line in the sand. Mm-hmm. You guys can cross the line if you want to, but the men who stay here fight to the death. Because this concept of Texas is bigger than any of us. But I think leaders are afraid afraid to inspire that. There are worse things to lose than your life today. Right. Yeah. There are worse things to lose than your life today. Yeah. Your freedom, your dignity, your integrity, your manliness. Yeah. There, there's something worse to lose today than your life. That's the essence of all these great speeches. All of these great speeches. There's something worse to lose than your life. There's something more at stake than you. Well, I think effeminate bad leaders are selfish and they assume other people are selfish. And so they assume the thing that they prize the most is their life and their own welfare. And so they start there and they try and inspire people. Well, you know, uh, if you do this, then uh, if you vote for me, then you'll get a tax break. But you go back even to somebody like Kennedy, who's a man that in many ways I don't admire, but, you know, he was famously willing to tell people like, it's not about you. It's about your country, which actually, it turns out, men in particular respond, respond to that to. sort of thing. They they want to be told what is the higher cause. Everyone is looking. Whether be, be they pagan or be they Christian, Every, they want something outside something of themselves, something bigger, bigger than themselves. Absolutely. To live for yeah. something that's worth dying for. What's interesting about the Henry speech, I'm sure a lot of literal, critical, literary, critical theory, snob, progressives say, make the point that actually what he's asking them to die for isn't much. It's a land feud. And this nebulous concept of honor is all that he's really got. And yet it is powerful because it does speak to a human desire for something bigger, for country, you know, and for honor, for integrity, for, for these things that are real. <sighs> all right, guys. Now, what about this scene where Henry or Harry, whatever you want to call him, gaslights the woman into submitting to a patriarchal and monarchal system that's subjugated her to him as wife how do you guys feel about that scene what <laughs> i think you're loading the question there nathan am i yeah that was a fair like question it's like a feminist reading nathan i thought it was a fairly sweet scene of she totally says to him like whatever my father wants and then he's like i'm gonna tease you and make fun of your french and kind of like uh what, there's there's a word like in uh red pill circles for the thing where he teases her and kind of constantly you, know, you can read like man, man men manifestos where it's like constantly keep her off balance like use emotionally you get a little angry here and, and just keep her off that's kind of what henry does here isn't it with the princess i guess actually let's take a step back before we get to that what's with the weird scene where she just talks french did everybody in shakespeare's time know french brandon uh a good portion of the nobility would have yeah so I'm just supposed to go to this thing and know French? This movie didn't have subtitles. Well, I mean, it's like reading Tolstoy and most of it being in French. Nope, because Tolstoy has, at least in my translation, footnotes I, Footnotes that tell me what the French <laughs> says. Yeah, those are really easy to follow. 
the the thing is just but it's the most frustrating thing about this translation drives me crazy i was telling nathan earlier today i don't know that if i had been like the supervising editor of this translation i would have done anything different yeah but if it were for me personally man translate it all and put what's in french in italics yeah or something like that and have a little footnote that says you know you can give the french in the footnotes yeah you can give the french in the footnotes you have an early footnote that says everything that you see in all italics was in French. Yeah. So that you know when somebody's signaling something or what's being signaled by Tolstoy when somebody switches to French yeah. or between French and Russian. I mean, because they may as well have just but, left the Russian in as well and then just put footnotes for that. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> you make a fair point. <laughs> nah, I don't know. I, I, I like it the way it is, I think. It's, it's a little frustrating, but it at least allows, it, it makes a clear delineation to when they're speaking French, which I do like. I like the ways that they found to make the German accents come off in English and the emphases on different things. And Yeah. Boy, is it a good book. Yep. You know what else is good? What? Shakespeare. Shakespeare. Henry V. Yeah, I think I'll leave that in so that people can see how we struggle with footnotes. It might yeah. amuse them to see that. So, folks. Well, any any listener that's reading our translation of Pavier and Volkansky, Pavier and Volkansky translation is going to come up with the same frustration because yeah. you have these people, and depending on who the person is, or even the fact that you know Tolstoy is going to have in the middle of some dialogue, uh, she said while smiling, or they're going to be switching back and forth between Russian and French. You're going to have to be constantly bouncing down to the footnotes right and then back up and then back down and then back up and then back down and then back up just to get a complete sentence because you're gonna have up in the body text english french english french and then some each phrase will have its own little like she said while smiling and then down in the footnote you're gonna get the french translation ellipses french translation ellipses translation ellipses translation ellipses right it's just man it's it's rough. Yeah. But Tolstoy, good writer. All right, guys. All we got to do is talk about this princess chick and her- And whether or not it's sexist. Well, first we got to talk about that wacko doodle scene with her nurse where they talk it's in, all French. in French. Yeah. Am I supposed to just like get that? Like, what am I supposed to do with that? Brandon? Did you get it when you watched it? Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, they, they kept saying things like elbow and stuff. So I knew like, oh, they're, she's she's learning English and it's cute. That's what I got out of it. I think that's what you're supposed to get. I don't know why I needed like five minutes of that, though. That's funny. It adds some humor. Yes. It adds some... It's also some foreshadowing. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Like... That that last chunk really would come out of nowhere if you didn't have that. Well, yeah. And also the tension of what's going to happen. Are we in a tragedy here? Are we in a... I mean, if you don't know your history, I guess. I suppose that's true. Eh, I don't like it. One star, Shakespeare. One star. Terrible Fair scene. Fair yeah. Enough. And if you do one thing that I don't like, I will go to your podcast, Shakespeare, and I will give you one star. Um, yeah. Then we have this last scene where Harry just gaslights this woman into liking him. She's got to marry him. The system says she does. I think that's called wooing. Is it, Jake? Or is it yeah. called patriarchal oppression? It's called courting. Is it? Yeah. One, like, 20-minute session with a lady that doesn't even speak the same language. And she's supposed to feel He's good about charming. this. He's super charming. Eh, kind of. He's like teasing her and keeping her off balance. That's 
really not playing fair. I don't think that's not what men should do. It worked. Yeah, that's true. It did work. Brandon, your thoughts? It worked. Wow. Coldly pragmatic. <laughs> yeah. And sexist, both <laughs> of you. <laughs> if it works, it works. Hey, What's that? He killed the dragon. He needed to get the get the girl. Yeah, he did. It's, it's all in an, a biblical analogy, actually. Yeah. Um, he's got game, this Henry. That's he's that's what we game. learned from that yeah. scene. He's got some good game. <laughs> now, listen, you could do worse if you want to woo women. You could do worse know. than read this scene. If, if you, if you want to learn how to have game, Henry's got game, you know? Henry's he's got, game. got game. He's humble. He's like, yeah, I'm a king. I'm not really eloquent. Um, whatever. I can't talk well. He does that whole thing. And then he kind of teases her and doesn't really give her the time of day. But then he does and he flatters her and, you know. It's all cute. If you're going to woo a woman, you kind of have to tease her. Like, you have to show her that, like, you know, you can be the boss. Like, you can, you know, like, you got to, like, tease her a little bit to show her stuff, you know, like, that you're not intimidated by her kind of thing. You got to do that. Right, guys? Yeah. And then you got to, like, say nice stuff to her. Like, yeah, you're pretty. Yeah, like, you're pretty, and I want to kiss you. And by the way, we can do that, because... Actually, the funny thing about this scene, it really works. I think this is a testament to Shakespeare. My wife was in and out. She was doing laundry, whatever. She wasn't paying attention. I was watching the Tom Hiddleston thing. She comes in. She's still not paying attention. Actually, she came in during, like, the St. Crispin's Day speech and said, who's that guy? I like him, about Henry. She she decided he was a likable character, and then she walked out, which I'll say is a testament to Hiddleston as much as anything. But then she comes in during this uh, princess scene, and she hasn't been paying attention the whole time, and she suddenly starts watching, and she starts laughing, and she starts talking back to the screen and saying, oh, oh yeah, buddy, of course you'd say that. So she starts like talking to Henry and providing color commentary on what he's doing and how good his moves are and everything. And she's completely invested, like she's she's interested in him, in the dynamic between this man and this woman, and she's kind of mocking it a little bit, but she's she's into it, right? And I thought it was a testament, like Shakespeare can write a good love scene. It's the kind of scene that some random woman, in this case, my beautiful bride, walks in and is just like, oh, yeah, I recognize that from my life. I know that. I mean, obviously, she's married to a guy that is at least as charming and much more eloquent than... Henry or... Than, Tom Hiddleston. Then Henry or Tom Hiddleston. The two of them put together, really. Then the two of them put together. Yeah. And multiplied by a factor of seven. Final thoughts. Brandon, how many lampposts do you give to Henry V? Uh, 23. 23 lampposts. That's nice funny. job. I was going to come off with 22, and then you one-upped me in my mind. So. Whoa. So yeah. are you going to match me with 23? I'm going to stick to my guns at 22. Okay. Jake, your calculator, please. Yes. So- this is a still a seven lamppost system, yes. <laughs> which means that the total amount of lampposts would be seven, 14, 21 lampposts. Yeah. And yet I'm giving it 74 lampposts. <laughs> so 23 plus 22 plus 74. 39.6 repeating. Wait. 39.666. He gave it 23, I gave it 22, and you gave it 74. But what percentage did it get? That's what I want to know. What per, wait, what percentage of seven? Yeah, we need to divide 74 plus 22 plus 20. That figure pl- divided by 21. 566.6 repeating percent. So the quality that the Bookening lamppost system finds Henry V to be is? 566.6 repeating percent. There you go. Folks, it's really late Take that as we record Lewis. this. 
Yeah, take that, C.S. Lewis. You ain't no you Shakespeare. Got on you, Shakespeare. Can't even, you, you couldn't even get seven lampposts. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't even get 100%. Whoa. And, we, and the system is based on your lamppost. Jerk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Disclaimer, the book in English likes Shakespeare. Nope. Yeah, yeah we do. We do. <laughs> uh, also, C.S. Lewis. Yeah. All right. If I could go back in Not time. Not including until we have faces. And I would get day, Shakespeare maybe. in my time machine. And we would come to the present and we would dig up C.S. Lewis's shin bone and beat him over the head with it. No, then we would go back in time and beat him over the head with C.S. Lewis and beat the living C.S. Lewis with his own shin bone. Yeah, that shin bone would go (laughs) further up and further into his skull. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Your face, Lewis. Oh, man. Only the best criticism and the most insightful (laughs) here at the Bookening. Guys, I'm not going to, it's really late. I think our listeners will be okay if we don't do a whole Patreon thing, but I do want to call out one patron. Do it. Do it. Do it. And that would be... Come to the dark side. Six Pack Zach with a mean attack. Yeah. He wrote to us and said, my wife would like to be called out as well. Oh, sweet. And he said, please save my marriage. This is a quote from Zach. He said, please save my marriage. I forgot to tell you, you also needed to call out my wife. And What's now she's, she's furious. I don't know if we want to save his marriage. Okay, I think we should. Jake, you think we should save six-pack Zach with a mean attack's marriage? Yep. I mean, if six-pack Zach, he's probably going to save his own marriage. You'd think. Yeah. He could take a page out of Henry V and just use his wooing technique. But hey, we'll help you out, buddy. Yeah, we, we love you, Zach. So let's, I want both of you uh-huh. to shout out six-pack Zach with a mean attack and Catherine with a knack for laying down the smack. Six pack exactly exact the mean, mean attack, attack and, and Catherine, Catherine with, with a knack, knack for laying down, down the smack. Hey, The Bookening Today was written and produced, blah, 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 blah. Go to patreon.com forward slash The Bookening. Support us there. Guys, like you heard in the episode, get us to $1,000 for 2020 so we can do Tolkien. The year of Tolkien. And that doesn't mean we're just going to do Tolkien, but we'll do a little bit of Tolkien like on a regular basis. for the swans, guys. Yeah, you've got like a week. But you're only $200 or so to the swans. Get it. Do it, do it, Yeah, just... How much is a swan suit going to cost us? Yeah. Well, and you know what? You don't need life insurance. Your family will be fine. Okay? You're never going to die. Right. Or health insurance for that matter. You're, health insurance. you're wise enough to listen to the booking. So That's all you need. Yeah. You're wise enough to figure out the key to immortality. Right. Food? Overrated. Overrated. <sighs> hey, Nathan. You look, really look like a guy who finds food to be unnecessary. Because I'm so thin? Yeah. The joke's gone. The joke is, is gone. gone. The, the joke, joke is, is gone. gone. <laughs> Folks, if you know that reference, then nerd. <laughs> you like the Muppets. Yeah. Including can... things that have been deleted from their movies. Yeah, they were so embarrassed by it, they had to get rid of it themselves. <laughs> Somebody canceled that song. For the Muppets I, to be embarrassed I didn't by know something. That. that is from the Muppet Christmas Carol. It is a song that was like that doesn't appear in current versions, but did appear like in theaters and in the home video version yeah. that I had. For the Muppets to be embarrassed by some, it's got to be pretty embarrassing. I mean, those guys are throwing fish and frogs and pigs are living together. 
Is that a Ghostbusters reference? <laughs> it was supposed to be, but I couldn't remember what came after that. You like Bill Mass Murray? Hysteria. Mass Hysteria. That's what I wanted. Thank you, Jake. And thank you, listeners. We'll thank see you, you next Murray. week. Next week, we'll have Bill Murray as a guest. Yeah, next week, we do have Bill Murray as a guest. That'd be, that'd be a bit of a get. <laughs> yeah. That'd be awesome. That'd be pretty cool. Wouldn't it be amazing? Yeah, everybody's... We got six degrees of separation. Mm-hmm. So... We've got some listener out there that is five degrees or less to Bill Murray, and we want Bill Murray on this show. Make it happen. Yep. That's our goal for 2020. There are thousands of you out there. I'm confident that at least one of you is fewer than five degrees of separation from Bill Murray. Yep. And we are counting on you to make it happen. Get us Bill Murray. I'm confident that one of you is zero degrees and is, in fact, Bill Bill Murray Murray himself. So, Bill, give us a call, baby. Give us a call, baby. He listens. Yeah, he listens. Of course he does. Of course he does. (laughs) 